This is the Relic Radio Show, old-time radio entertainment still standing the test of time from RelicRadio.com. Welcome back to the Relic Radio Show, 60 minutes of radio drama, which you can find every Tuesday at RelicRadio.com. This week we begin with Rocky Jordan and his episode from October 9th, 1949, titled The Man With No Name. After that, it's The Whistler. And Chain Reaction, his story from May 12th, 1948. Buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Time now for Rocky Jordan, brought to you by Del Monte Foods, the brand preferred by more women than any other line of canned fruits and vegetables in the world. Not far from the Mosque Sultan Hassan in Cairo stands the Café Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. The Café Tambourine, crowded with forgotten men, alive with the babble of many languages. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against the backdrop of antiquity. Del Monte presents Rocky Jordan, and this week's story, The Man with No Name. It was night, around 11 or so. Business was about as slow as a camel in a headwind. Few people were scattered through the tambourine, but none of them was making much of a noise in the register. It was the man on table six, however, who caught my eye. He'd ordered a bottle of gin and a pitcher of tonic. and was doing his own mixing and enjoying what he made. He was a big man, stocky, with a bush of gray hair and a pair of sharp blue eyes. His skin was bronze and tough. He figured he'd spend a lot of time outdoors. When his hand started fumbling through his pockets looking for a match, I stepped up to his table and offered him a light. Hmm? Oh, thank you. Yeah, a second, I'll get you a book of matches. No, no, it's not necessary right now. You're the uh, proprietor of this place, aren't you? That's right. Jordan's the name, Rocky Jordan. Well, I'm very pleased to meet you, Mr. Jordan. I've enjoyed this hour or so here very much. Uh, won't you join me? Oh, fine, I'd like to. Uh, uh, Gin and tonic? I'll pass if it's all the same to you. Certainly. (laughs) Through the evening, you must get many offers. I like your place, Mr. Jordan. I like it very much. Most of all, I like the fact that you and your help leave the customer alone. This is something that other restaurants and cocktail lounges could well emulate. Leave alone is an attribute lost by our civilization. Perhaps you'll come back soon. Perhaps, perhaps, Mr. Jordan, I... Plan to leave the continent in a day or so, but I hope one day to come back to Africa. One day soon, Mr. Jordan. Africa has much for me. Oh, have you been in the interior? I have. As a matter of fact, that's where I've spent most of the last few years. Wonderful years, Mr. Jordan. Primitive land with primitive peoples, but they both, both meant a great deal to me. Well, a lot of people feel that way, Mr. Uh... Have you ever been on an elephant hunt, Mr. Jordan? Yeah. Then you know how thrilling an experience it can be. Marvelous, marvelous beasts, elephant. Had an exciting time. Mr. Jordan. Hmm? You're an American, aren't you? I am. American in business in Cairo. Boston wasn't right for you, nor Seattle, or New Orleans, or Chicago. You turned your back on your past and came to Egypt for... Reasons which are your own concern, of course. Mind you, I, I'm not prying. What are you doing? What am I doing, indeed? <laughs> Perhaps I'm trying to find a justification for something I once did. And now, look, Mr. Uh, I can't say I'm not a happy man. I am. I, I am happy. I'm contented. For the past few years, I've lived the kind of life I've wanted, and not many people can say that, can they? Well, one last swallow. 
Thank you, Mr. Jordan. Thank you for a fine evening, for the fine cafe, for the fine gin and tonic, for the comfort you've been to me. Good night. I watched him walk out of the tambourine, pause for a moment in the doorway, then disappear in the dark up the street. Well, people come and people go. You meet all kinds running a cafe in Cairo, as I do. And usually you don't give them a second thought. This time it was different. I started to the register when I heard someone call my name. Mr. Jordan? He was a thin man in a light suit and a large brim Panama hat. He was sitting in the shadows at the end of the bar. Mr. Jordan, could you come here for a moment? Yeah, sure. Oh, what's on your mind? My name's Craven, Gerald Craven. That man. Hmm? What man? The one you were talking to, the big fellow with the gray hair. What about him? His face looks familiar. A lot of faces do. What's his name? I don't know. Well, you talked to him for quite a while. Surely you... I said I don't know. All right, don't get sore. Just anxious, that's all. Oh, do you have a phone I could use? At the end of the bar. Well, don't you have one that's a little more private? All right. Come on. Sorry to bother you like this, Mr. Jordan. It's just that it's very important yeah, for me Yeah, to... sure. Yeah, it's my office. Oh, there's the phone. Help yourself. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I'll be uh, out in front. Hello, operator. Get... I'd like to put a call into New York City in the United States. New York? Uh, don't worry, Mr. Jordan. I'll handle the charges. Uh, the number uh, The number is Plaza... Uh, just a moment, please, operator. Uh, do you mind, Mr. Jordan? This is a pretty confidential call. Oh, no, no, not at all. Make yourself right at home. Just don't forget to stop by and see me on your way out. He didn't forget. He made the call, paid me for it, and left. That, I figured, was to be that. It was for four days. Craven, the phone call, and the gray-haired guy who drank gin and tonic faded from memory till I picked up a copy of the Cairo Mail four days later. A small article on an inside page got my interest. It said the police had fished a murdered man out of the Nile... The thing about the article that struck me most was that the police had to say about the way the man died. They said it looked like he'd been shot in the face with an elephant gun. I figured that maybe I ought to run over to the station and tell Captain Sabaya about the things I had in my mind. Come in, Jordan. Come in. Oh, thanks, Sam. Sit down, Jordan. Mm-hmm. And to what do I owe this unexpected visit? Just curiosity, Sam. Hand this little item in the paper. Oh. And the one in the lower left-hand corner. Oh, the man who had been shot in the face with an elephant gun. Mm. Who is he, Sam? We have not been able to identify him. Seems to be a lot of mystery about it. Jordan, what do you know of this? Oh, very little. A man came into my cafe a few days ago, drank a lot of gin and tonic, talked about an elephant hunt, a lot of other things. An elephant hunt, you say, Jordan? Hmm. A moment, please. I would like you to look at something. Now, here it is. Now, study these photographs for a moment, Jordan. They are of the man we took out of the Nile. Is he the one you speak about, the one who was in your cafe? Mm, whoever shot him didn't leave much face for identification. Quite purposefully, in my opinion. Looks about the right size. Clothes are the same. Very tan skin, Sam? Yes. Gray hair? Gray hair. Ah, he's the one, all right. He's the gin and tonic man. Oh, what's this photograph, Sam? Oh, that is a close-up of the inner portion of his right arm. Observe the tattooing. Can't miss it. Now, tattooing, of course, is quite common in the East, but not the tattooing of numbers. 11 dash, 24 dash, 42. 11, 24, 42. What does that mean to you? Nothing. <clears throat> Jordan, when a foreign national is murdered in Cairo... Quite naturally, I am under extreme pressure from my superiors, who in turn are under pressure from the foreign embassy involved, whatever it may be. Now, Jordan, I must apprehend the murderer. Yes, Sam, I know that. Now, you will be so good as to relate to me in detail the exact happenings the night this, this man with no name visited your cafe. Sure, Sam, be glad. And, Jordan... I must insist that you leave out nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, proceed. Well, I told Sam all I knew about my conversation with the gin and tonic man, about Gerald Craven and his questions concerning that man's identity, and about the telephone call in New York City. Then I went back to the tambourine. 
I was sitting in my office thinking about the whole affair when suddenly I found myself wanting to know more about that telephone call. A little later, I was talking to one of the girls at the phone company's business office. Yes, I have the record of a phone call made from your number to New York City. Uh, well, the call was made by one of my customers, and I'd like to know the charge. It was a person-to-person call to Gloria Hennessy at Plaza 79970, and the charges will be five pounds and 35 piastres, including tax. Okay, thanks. Well, I found out what I wanted, who the call was made of. What I was going to do with the information, I didn't quite know. But right then and there, I had something else to think about. I no sooner had put the phone in the cradle when a big hand grabbed me by the arm. Mr. Jordan, turn around. You don't give me much choice. I'm sorry if I appear to be rough, but we must talk. Look at me. I did. But I had to look up to see his face. He was six foot six or more. And he was from someplace in the middle of Africa. But I figured he'd had some education. He had a grim look and a vice-like grip, and I knew he meant business. My name is Jonah. I'm a Zulu from South Africa. We have something to talk about. How did you get in here? Four nights ago, the Buana came into your place. Lots of people come into my place. The Buana, you remember. He drank gin and tonic. I had let loose your... Last night, he left the rooming house to come back to your cafe. I never saw him again. The police found him dead in the river. Let go, I said you get a knee in your stomach. And you, Mr. Jordan, will have a broken arm. Now listen to me. He knew no people in Cairo. He saw few people here. But someone he saw killed him. And perhaps it was you. Ah, you can stop squeezing. I get your point. I do not know it was you, but I shall watch you, Jordan. I shall watch you most closely. And if I find out it was you who did the killing... Well, what then? Then you shall die most hard. Good evening, Mr. Jordan. Del Monte Foods is presenting tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan. All good cooks know it's flavor that counts in satisfying healthy appetites. That's why millions of housewives, particularly those with long cooking experience, depend on Del Monte tomato sauce for added flavor. There's just no better way to brighten plain foods or give added zest to low-cost meals. One Del Monte enthusiast, Mrs. John H. Anderson of Los Angeles, said, Del Monte tomato sauce has plenty of good, rich tomato flavor. That's why it's been my favorite for over 20 years. It really brings out the flavor of the food you cook with it, and I say that's the test of a good tomato sauce. Another thing, Del Monte tomato sauce is dependable. I use it many ways, vegetable soup, meatloaf, stuffed peppers, meat pies, and so on. Del Monte tomato sauce is always good. Thank you, Mrs. Anderson. It's a fact. American housewives have bought more cans of Del Monte tomato sauce than any other brand. Flavor is the reason. The flavor that's never been matched. You can depend on Del Monte, the original tomato sauce. Many women buy it by the half dozen or dozen cans... Then they're never without it. And now we take you back to Cairo and tonight's Rocky Jordan story, The Man with No Name. Well, Jonah, the Zulu, let me keep my arm and left. The next incident didn't happen until some hours later. After the supper rush, I went for a walk in the Cairo night. One, to get some fresh air. Two, to do some thinking about the affair of the man with no name. I was moving down the Sharia Muhammad Ali when a street peddler came up from behind. Highest quality type water for sale at most reasonable prices. The good FND wishes to purchase from noble water seller some of the same. No, no thanks. Oh, do not rush off yet, good FND. Observe the good, clean, clear water. Observe the cool, comforting water. Look, I'm not thirsty. Observe, same and listen, Jordan Bay. Huh? Jordan Bay, is it not? It is. You are wanted. By whom? A lady of your kind. Even at this moment at an address in Cairo, an American lady waits for you. With a candle in the window? What's her name? Gloria Hennessy, she is called. Gloria 
The address? 742 Sharia El Orkar. Thanks. I have done her bidding. Assalamu alaikum. What a He slid off into the dark and left me thinking about Gloria Hennessy. 742 Sharia El Orkar, he'd said. That well, was worth a try. Ten minutes later, a cab dropped me off in front of a small hotel just outside the Bab El Nasser gate. Gloria Hennessy's apartment was second floor front. I rapped on the door. A moment later, it came open. I was looking full into the face of a brown-eyed blonde who had got her hair color out of a bottle. She was loaded down with emir, and the clothes she was wearing wouldn't have passed inspection for a sultan's dancing girl. I've been waiting for you, Mr. Jordan. Ah, you should have let me know sooner. Come in, please. Yeah. This divan will be fine. Ah, thank you. Drink? No, thanks. You mind if I... No, go right ahead. I wonder if you know who I am. My name's Gloria Hennessy. Miss? What I meant was, I wonder if you know more than my name. You're from New York. Four days ago, you received a phone call from Cairo, from Gerald Craven. That suitcase in the corner still got the TWA tag on it, so it figures you flew here in a big hurry. Yes, that's right. Just to see me? In a way, yes. A few nights ago, a man came into your cafe. Big, heavy set. Drank gin and tonic. A lot of people are interested in him. I know. Even the police. Yes, I read about that, too. It's a shame. If I'd been able to see him, I wouldn't have had to bother you like this. Well, so far, it's been no bother. All I want you to do, Mr. Jordan, is tell me who that man was. Don't you think you ought to get Craven in here before we take this any further? What? The cigarette in the ashtray hasn't got any lipstick on it. You wipe yours off before you smoke. All right. Craven? Craven, you may as well come in. Good evening, Jordan. Hi. We thought it'd be better if I spoke to you alone. I already told Craven I didn't know who that man was. That was four days ago. And you think I may know now? Yes. Why don't you ask the police? They don't know. The police figure he was shot in the face on purpose with a big gun so he couldn't be identified. What's so important about that man? Why all the questions about his identity? Mr. Jordan, I am willing to pay you $1,000 if you tell me who that man was. Hmm. A lot of dough for the name of a dead man. I have the money right here in my purse. You can leave with it. I could make up a name. You could. Sorry, lady. I'd be happy to take your money, but I don't know who that man was. Well, then, I suppose that's that. You are my last hope, Mr. Jordan. I really thought you might know. I suppose I'll have to go back to New York without knowing. Well, if that's all we've got to talk about, I'll run along now. Thank you very much for trying to help me. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, Miss Hennessy. Yes? There was a tattoo on the dead man's arm. Numbers. Oh? 11, 24, 42. Does mean anything? I don't know. A date, maybe. An American would mark a date like that. No. Anyway, Miss Hennessy, that's all the help I can give you. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you very much. Oh, one thing more. Yes? Why don't you just keep that $1,000 handy? Who knows? Maybe before this thing's over, I'll know the name of that man. I left and walked out into the street. I knew I couldn't catch a cab on the lonely Sharia El Rokar, so I decided to walk back to the tambourine. I had a lot to think about anyway. I wound my way through the dark Cairo streets, up the Sharia Ibrahim Pasha, past the Empire Club and the Victoria Hotel. Then I turned off, making my way down the Sharia El Bin, half street, half alley. That's when it happened. The window pane in front of me shattered, and it didn't take a lot of figuring to realize I was a target. I hit the pavement and scrambled on all fours for the protection of some garbage can. Well, I waited until it looked like it was over, and I picked myself up. That's when I saw that six-foot-six mass of muscle standing at the end of the alley. Jonah, the Zulu. I started looking around for a lead pipe. Mr. Jordan! What's the matter? Run out of bullets? You do not have to be afraid of me. Uh, prove it. I did not shoot at you. I have been following you, as I said I would, but I did not shoot at you. Look, I have no gun. Uh, you could have thrown it away. No. This shooting has convinced me that there is more to the Buana's death than I suspected. Perhaps it was not you who killed him. Well, thanks for the vote of confidence. Who threw those shots at me? I did not see. 
Mr. Jordan, let us talk. Uh, you talk, I'll listen. Who is this Juana of yours? A friend. She's got a name. I never knew it. Uh, we met three years ago in Cape Town. I was going to the university. I've been showing him Africa ever since. Well, you must know something about him. Only that he was a good friend. He uh, had some numbers tattooed on his arm. 11, 24, 42. A date he wished to remember. Why? He never said. You're a great help. What was he doing in Cairo? Arranging for air passage on TWA for New York City. He wished to arrive in the United States before some holiday. What holiday? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. What day does it come on this year? I believe he said the uh, 24th. 24th of November. 11, 24, 49. The tattooing said... 11, 24, 42. Seven years difference. Seven years. What does it mean, Mr. Jordan? I know one thing it could mean. Come on. Where are we going? Put in a claim for $1,000. And incidentally, find an answer to this mess of the man with no name. Jonah and I took out fast, like the super chief on a downgrade, retracing my steps down the Ibrahim Pasha, across to the Shariel Rokar. The hotel I was looking for was easy to find, because I'd been there once before. So was the apartment, second floor front. When I rapped on the door, it was opened by the same one who'd opened it for me before. And a moment later, Jonah and I were inside, and Gloria Annesley was looking at me kind of funny. Mr. George. The same. Oh, uh, this is Jonah, a friend of mine, I think. How do you do? How do you do? Why did you come back, Mr. Jordan? Oh, maybe to earn that $1,000. Jonah was a close friend of the man who was killed. He? He knows who he was? No. I'm afraid I don't understand. Uh, you will. Please get to the point, Mr. Jordan. Mr. Craven and I are leaving Cairo soon. I want to ask you one question, Miss Hennessy. What is it? That's it. That's what? That's the question. Is it Miss Hennessy or... Mrs. Hennessy. I don't see what that's got to do... I haven't do. heard your answer yet. Maybe I don't think I ought to answer it. Huh? You don't have to. Where are you going? Your purse here on the table. You leave that alone. Sure, after I find what I want. Yeah, yeah. Driver's license, this'll do. Mrs. Gloria Hennessy. There's your purse. Well, I guess it was I who made the first mistake. I looked at you and started calling you Miss... Maybe it was wishful thinking. Oh, don't worry, mister. A guy with your manners hasn't got a chance. All right, so I'm Mrs. Gloria Hennessy. What does that mean? Well, let's see if we can figure it out. What's going on it? Jordan. Hi, Craven. Come on in. Just in time to see me here $1,000. Who's this? Oh, his name's Jonah. He's not going to like you. Gerald, he's found out that I'm Mrs. Hennessy and not Miss. He's trying to make something out of it. Oh, but that's preposterous. Yeah, it? not if the man who's dead was Mr. Hennessy. You supply the first name, Glory. He was your husband. Now, the way I figure it, went something like this. Seven years ago, Hennessy disappeared. I don't know what the circumstances were. You'll have to tell me. Anyway, he spent the next seven years in Africa, living the kind of life he wanted. But after seven years, New York says a man is legally dead. All his possessions, and probably quite a bit, go to his wife. Hennessy didn't want that, because I don't suppose he liked you very much, Gloria. He was making it a point to get back to the United States before the seven years were completely up. Well, that wasn't so hot for you, so you decided to kill him in a way the body couldn't be easily identified. And as far as the law knew, Hennessy'd been dead for seven years. The riches are all yours. Jordan, you're a... Be Please, Gloria. Jordan, that's a very fanciful theory you have. Huh? When I tell Captain Sabaya about it, he'll just lift a few fingerprints off the dead man, check it with some of Hennessy's papers in New York. I'll tell you how fanciful my theory is. Do, uh, you want to call Sabaya? Or shall I? Both Craven and Gloria stood there, neither moving. I was wondering what Craven had in mind, and I found out. He started slowly, as if he was making for the phone, but as he got there, he turned his back toward me, and his hand made a dart for his inside coat pocket. It never got there. Jonah got to him first. He grabbed Craven by the scruff of the neck with one hand and the seat of the pants with the other. Then lifted him high over his head and with all his might threw him against the far wall. Well, as it turned out, when Craven landed, he wasn't even in condition to dial a phone. 
So it was I who had to put the call in to Captain Sam Sabaya, Cairo Police. In just a moment, Rocky Jordan returns to conclude tonight's story. What gives Del Monte ketchup such marvelous flavor? Pineapple vinegar. Pineapple vinegar? Sounds good. But just what is this pineapple vinegar? It's a superlative vinegar, crystal clear and sparkling. It's made by Del Monte for its own use. No other catsup has it. And that's what gives Del Monte catsup its wonderful flavor? Yes, it's one of the things, and a very important one. Catsup experts say the finer the vinegar, the better the catsup flavor. It isn't that you taste the vinegar itself. It's the way pineapple vinegar brings out the very best in the other ingredients that is so important. It accents the rich, sunny flavor of Del Monte's plump, vine-ripened tomatoes. And it helps blend the special herbs and spices with the tomatoes to make catsup that just can't be topped for hearty, satisfying flavor. Del Monte catsup has always been my favorite. Now I know why it adds that appetizing zest to plain foods and everyday dishes. Friends, if you haven't already tried Del Monte catsup, Make a note to get some next time you go shopping. We know you'll like it. And you'll be surprised at its low price. For all its goodness, Del Monte catsup costs less than many other quality brands. Back now to Rocky Jordan and the conclusion of tonight's story. Well, Sam came and I told him what I knew. He hustled Gerald Craven and Gloria Hennessy to the station, told Jonah to go back to his rooming house. He'd talk to him later. He told me to go into his office and wait until he had a chance to talk to Gloria and Craven. And 20 minutes later, he came into the office and roused me out of his squeaky chair. Hello, Jordan. I... Jordan, hmm? please, use the other chair. I do not like you looking through the papers on my desk. <laughs> I didn't find much, Sam. Just your weekly quota of the traffic ticket. Your Occidental brand of humor has always failed to impress me. Sorry? Well, Jordan, as they have confessed all, I understand from my conversations with Craven and Mrs. Hennessy that this is approximately what occurred. After Hennessy arrived in Cairo from the interior of Africa, he sent a telegram to his wife in New York advising her of the fact that he was not dead and was returning within the seven-year period. She must get a big kick out of that. She did not know whether or not it was a hoax. So she dispatched her lawyer, Gerald Craven, to Cairo to find out. He found out it was no hoax. Called her and... Her long conversation with you, of course, was not to determine the identity of the dead man, which she already knew, but to determine whether or not you knew his identity. And when I said I might find out, Craven took his bullets after me. Precisely. Well, coffee, Jordan? No, no thanks, Sam. I uh, get back to the tambourine. Tambourine? What is the hurry? <laughs> I want to cross gin and tonic off my menu. For the finest in tomato flavor, enjoy the whole family of Del Monte tomato products. Del Monte ketchup and chili sauce. Del Monte tomato sauce and canned tomatoes. And Del Monte tomato juice. Remember, buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Rocky Jordan, written by Larry Roman and Gomer Cool, stars Jack Moyles in the title role with Jay Novello as Sam Sabaya, and is produced and directed by Cliff Howell, with original music composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Remember, you have a date next week at the Cafe Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. Same time, same station. And the story is Quest for Tranina. Looking for a glamorous dessert that's easy to prepare? Then serve Del Monte Fruit Cocktail. It's ready diced. 
Its five tasty fruits are mixed and carefully balanced for a sparkling flavor treat. Best fruit cocktail you ever tasted. Del Monte, the brand that always puts flavor first. Larry Thor speaking. Rocky Jordan is presented over CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. That whistle is your signal for the Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. And I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. Yes, friends, it's time for the Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. Rated tops in popularity for a longer period of time than any other West Coast program in radio history. And Signal Gasoline is top, too. Tops in quality. It takes extra quality, you know, to give you extra mileage. And Signal is the famous go-farther gasoline. So look for the Signal Circle sign in yellow and black that identifies friendly dealer-owned Signal stations from Canada to Mexico. And now the Whistler's strange story. Chain Reaction. Johnny Turner was packing his suitcase, but mentally he was tearing up his train ticket to Chicago. It had been several years since Johnny used to wonder, while barnstorming the country, if his mind was playing tricks on him, if Diana could really be as beautiful as the image of her that clung to his thoughts like adhesive. When he came back, he found that Diana was everything he dreamed of and more. She was not only as beautiful, she was married. She had everything that money could buy. But still, she kept coming around to see him, still as approachable as a park bench. Now, as she sat on his bed in the cheap rooming house, watching him pack, he realized all over again how close love is to hate, as close as the two sides of his last thin dime. So you're leaving, Johnny, huh? You catch on quick. Just to avoid me, is that it? Where are you going? Traveling. I got a road job selling song sheets and razor blades. If I work hard, they'll put me on buggy whips. Any more questions? Johnny, darling. Go away. I'm not in the market. Johnny, why don't you stop pretending? You still love me. You know you do. I said go away. You depress me. You need me, Johnny. I need you like I need three thumbs. <laughs> you really don't mean that. Try me again. All right, all right, Johnny. Have it your way. I just dropped by to see if you'd be interested in a job. I have a job. This one pays a lot of money. And my income tax would be too high. No. A lot of money. Just fly a plane. Who's? If you're interested, you can get all the details tonight. It's a nice setup, Johnny. And temporary. Like everything else. Are you interested? Yeah. Oh, Johnny. In the dough, sweetheart. You're so eager. But then you always were. I don't ever remember you throwing rocks at me, darling. Well, where do I get the details? How about Mike's Cafe for dinner? You have enough money to get your pants pressed? Yeah, sure. Maybe both legs. Oh, here, Johnny, take this. I told you before, I don't need any hand Stop being so touchy. You won't get this job if you come looking like a tramp. If I get the job, who will I be working for? My husband. Oh, your husband, huh? What are you up to, Diana? Well, nothing. Nothing at all, darling. 
See you tonight. Bartender. Yeah? My clock right? Sure. What's the matter, Pat? Your girlfriend stand yet? No. Maybe your husband did. Huh? Skip it. Give me another bourbon and water. And send it over to our table, will you, bartender? Yeah, yeah, sure, lady. Hello, Johnny. Uh, this is, uh, Frank. Sorry we kept you waiting, Turner. Oh, that's all right. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are always waiting for somebody and those who keep you waiting. You just made that up? Yeah, yeah. I get better as the evening goes along. Uh, shall we go to our table, gentlemen? Sure. Ah, uh, Walsh. My bar bill, take care of it, huh? I left my wallet in my other suit. <laughs> you do get better as the evening goes along, don't you? Somehow you hadn't pictured Diana's husband this way, had you, Johnny? A bald, red-faced, chubby little man with bright, beady eyes. Thin, moist lips that seem to be fixed in a perpetual grin. He keeps sizing you up all through dinner, asking question after question. You become slightly annoyed. Look, Walsh, are you going to write the story of my life or give me a job? Now, don't be that way, Johnny. Naturally, Frank has to know a few things before... I thought you'd given him the build-up. He has, Ted. Diana is quite certain you'll be able to do the job. Uh-huh. You haven't told me yet what the job is, Walsh. Now, there are three parts to it. One, you do as you're told. Two, you keep your mouth shut. Three... You fly a plane. Mm-hmm. How much does the third part pay? It's not piecework. The whole job pays five grand. It won't take us more than three weeks to complete the job. Five grand is a lot of dough for three weeks. Keep talking. You'll be working for the Continental Salvage Company. What are you going to salvage? Gold. Well, that sounds like nice work. Is there money in it? When business to salvage gold from the ocean bottom. Now, take a look at this. Oh, a map. Just like in the movies, huh? Now, this area here, Cuba, Jamaica, during the war, several ships went down here. They were carrying large shipments of gold. Most of the gold is still there. Most of it? I don't recall hearing about it. A lot it. of it has already been salvaged. You don't hear about it because the government has a habit of demanding a rather large cut in the profit. So most of the salvage work has been kept quiet. However, we're going down there after the gold on a big scale... Legitimately. Uh-huh. Big business. We're a stock corporation, Turner, with half a million dollars invested capital. Well, where uh, does my job come in? Your job is to scout the area ahead of the salvage vessel, and the only way to cover that much water is with a plane. What do you say, Johnny? Do you want the job? Okay, Walsh. You just bought yourself a pilot. <laughs> Even for $5,000, there's something about this deal you don't like, Johnny. And the following day, when you see the Queen Oriana, the ship chartered by Continental Salvage Corporation, you like it even less. An old, broken-down tub, built back in the 90s as a yacht, now part of a small fleet of fishing boats. There's nothing left of her bright work, and the varnish is all peeled off her rotting mahogany. She doesn't look safe enough to sail in a fish pond. The last thing to go aboard her is the plane you're to fly. A trim, sleek-looking cabin cruiser fitted with pontoons. You look her over very carefully, don't you, Johnny? And you notice the extra gas tank. And you also notice that the plane is without radio. As you slip out of the plane and jump down to the deck, Walsh comes towards you. Well, what do you think of her, Turner? She'll do. Think she's good enough to fly nonstop over the Gulf of Mexico? Gulf of Mexico? You ought to brush up on your geography. My geography's all right. And your sense of direction is not so good. We're not going that way. Answer my question. Okay. If you want to fly the Gulf of Mexico, I guess she'll oblige. But I wouldn't figure on setting her down on the water. The Gulf can get awfully nasty at times. In bad weather, this plane wouldn't last an hour. I said uh, nonstop, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, that's what you said. You watch him as he waddles down the deck and disappears into his cabin. And you wonder about his sudden interest in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes, there's something about all this you don't like. 
And then, just before you sail that night, while Walsh is below deck, you meet Diana. Her eyes are glazed with a sweet sorrow of parting. Goodbye, darling. Goodbye, Diana. When you come back, Johnny, I'll be waiting for you. You said that the last time, remember? Don't you think I know what a terrible mistake I made? I think saying goodbye is a sort of pastime with you. Some women enjoy crocheting or tatting. It's not too late, Johnny. When you come back, we'll have enough money to go away together. If we do come back according to plan, your husband will still be able to outbid me. But I love you, Johnny. I may decide to stay in Cuba. You won't. Because you love me, you know you do. No matter where you go, you will always come back to me. You know something, Diana? What, darling? You're so right. The way I feel about you is like a disease. Oh, Johnny. I'll come back. Without him? What did you say? If anything happened to him on the way back, an, an accident... You'd be sitting pretty, wouldn't you, all that dough? We'd be sitting pretty, darling. And we'd never have to say goodbye again. This would be the last time. The last time, Johnny. Well? Who knows? Accidents do happen. prologue of Chain Reaction, the Signal Oil Company is bringing you another strange story by The Whistler. But now a word to you drivers. If you want to keep performance up and wear down during the months of hard summer driving ahead, it's time to see your signal dealer now for a spring changeover from winter-weary lubricants. Costly transmission and differential gears need the protection of fresh summer weight signal gear lube. For limbering up the chassis, there's no spring tonic like a signal double-check lube job. And, of course, your motor should be drained and refilled with fresh motor oil. Wait a minute. Did I say motor oil? Well, don't you say motor oil. Be sure you say signal premium compounded motor oil. For signal premium is the improved type lubricant that far outperforms the finest regular motor oils money can buy. You see, because Signal fortifies 100% pure paraffin base with scientific compounds, Signal Premium does more than just lubricate. In fact, tests prove Signal Premium actually keeps motors six times cleaner and reduces cylinder wear one-third, your guarantee of a sweeter running motor. But remember this, only Signal service stations have Signal Premium compounded motor oil. Mighty good reason, I'd say, why there's just one place to take your car for this spring's changeover. Your neighborhood signal service station. And now, back to the whistler. You could hardly ask for a better job, could you, John? $5,000 to fly a plane for the Continental Salvage Corporation in the Caribbean. The work is easy and the opportunity unlimited. Yes, unlimited, John. If anything should happen to Walsh, an accident, you and Diana, his wife, would be sitting pretty. The boat goes out on the 11 o'clock tide that night. On the second day out, you discover the ship is off its course, and you hurry to find Walsh. There's no answer from his cabin. As you turn and start down the deck, you run into the mate. Hey, you seen anything of Mr. Walsh? Well, look, you don't have to talk my ear off. Just answer yes or no. Listen, you're the mate on this tub. We're way off our course. I tried to tell the captain, but he's so drunk we'll be in Madagascar before he straightens out. Why don't you answer me? What's the matter with you? He stares at you stupidly, then walks away without a word. Yes, that's something else you'd notice. There's something strange about the crew, isn't there, Johnny? There are six Chinese who sleep below deck. None of them speaks English. The cook is a Korean, and his conversation consists of a wide grin. The three deckhands are fresh out of Portugal. The mate is a sullen German. And the captain lies on his bunk in a drunken stupor. There isn't a man in the entire crew you can talk to. But wait, you've forgotten the radio operator. Quickly, you hurry to the radio shack. You find him at his table, a kid, a gangly kid with a shock of red hair that keeps falling down over his forehead, and he looks nervous, frightened. 
My name is Turner, Johnny Turner. I'm the pilot for that plane on deck. Mine's Scott. Melvin Scott. They call me Scotty. <laughs> Glad to know you. Uh, I, uh, I just wanted to check the time from Arlington. Oh, sure. It'll be on a few minutes. Uh-huh. I was just writing a letter to my kid's sister in Scranton. Thought I might get it in the mail when we put in somewhere. <laughs> You're not exactly an old sea dog, are you, Scotty? No, uh-uh. No, it's my first job. You like it? I don't know. I, I want to make good and all that, but... You send our position in lately? Yeah, a couple hours ago. Mr. Walsh gave me the message. There it is on the spindle. Can I look at it? Sure. Uh-huh, I thought so. What? What's the matter? But this is all wrong, kid. We're not within 200 miles of this position. What? Yeah. Oh, this is all beginning to add up. Have you taken a look at that diving equipment on deck? Yeah, yeah, I kind of wondered about that. It doesn't look so good to me. I wouldn't wear it in a bathtub. I hate to think of anybody using that stuff. Maybe no one was ever supposed to use it, kid. What do you mean? Maybe this whole trip is a phony. A broken-down tub that's a cinch to go to pieces before we reach the Caribbean, moth-eaten diving equipment, a crew that doesn't speak a word of English, and... Look, kid. Yeah? You better report our correct position. Well, gee, I... I've figured it out, Scotty. I know exactly where we are. Well, look, Mr. Turner, I, I don't want to get into any trouble. You I... will if you don't do as I say. I didn't know that stuff I was sending was phony. Well, you do now. Okay, kid, what'll it be? All right, Mr. Turner. Good. Get on the key and start sending. Scotty, I'll give you... Ah! You turn around to find Walt standing in the doorway. His eyes wild, red-rimmed. The gun trembling a little in his pudgy hand. Come on, Turner. We're getting out of here. He was just a kid. Why did it's you have to... very sad, I know. Now, come on. The poor, dumb, innocent I kid... I said, come on. We're going for a little airplane ride, Turner. Time you started earning the money. On deck, you find the crew ready to set the plane overside with a cargo boom. Walsh holds a small black valise in one hand, waves the gun in the other, shouting orders. Then the two of you climb into the plane. A few minutes later, you're gathering speed like a roller coaster, the waves slapping at the pontoons. And then slowly she lifts. You climb to 3,000 feet and level off. The gun in Walsh's hand is still in your back. You can put the gun away now, Walsh. Keep flying. Where to? A few miles north of Tampa. My wife will be waiting there, on the beach. And after that? Mexico, across the Gulf. Think you can make Veracruz? That depends. On what? When do I get the five grand? When we land in Mexico. You expect me to believe that? Why not? Don't you trust me? Look again, friend. I'm not a stockholder. What do you mean? Didn't take you long to pack that valise. How much is in it? All the assets of the Continental Salvage Corporation? <laughs> like Diana said, you're a smart boy. Almost half a million. That's a lot of fish to feed to the sharks. Shark? Yeah, look down there. Uh-uh. <laughs> Makes me dizzy. As long as we're both in this plane, anything that happens to me happens to you. Throw the gun away. Sorry. Come on, Walsh. Which goes into the drink? The gun or you? The gun stays where it is. Okay. You climb the 5,000 feet. His hand is steady, the gun still in your back. You cut the throttle and drift for a moment, then lurch and nose straight down. Through the windshield is the blue water of the Atlantic. You can hear the wind sing louder and louder past the wings. You look at Walsh again. He's pale, but his gun hand doesn't move an inch. At 2,000 feet, it twitches. At 1,000, you stop breathing. The water comes at you like a tidal wave. The plane twists wildly. You pull open the throttle. The wind hits you like a pneumatic drill threatening to crack the plane wide open, and then, by a miracle, you level off. Okay, Walsh, you win. I... I could have told you. I always do. At the risk of being delightfully corny again, may I say something? What? You'll never get away with this. No? When that boat captain sobers up, he'll get a message to the Coast Guard. You'll be wanted for murder. 
<laughs> Let me tell you something, Turner. By now, there's nothing left of that ship but splinters. Oh? I guess I forgot to tell you. A friend of mine named Vogel. Sort of a clockmaker. Very handy. Especially with explosives. Explosives? That's right. I planted Mr. Vogel's bomb in the ship myself. Now that old tub is gone. And we, uh, you and I, we were blown apart with it. <laughs> you see, Turner, I, I thought of everything. Yeah. Yeah, you sure did. By nightfall, you reach the west coast of Florida. Finally, Walsh gives you the signal. And you bring the plane down on the smooth water of a lagoon. You taxi as close to the shore as possible and then cut the motor. The plane bobs gently up and down and you sit waiting. Walsh keeps looking in the direction of a small cottage some 200 yards up the beach. Then at his watch. Well, we're going to wait here all night. I'm going ashore. Wait here. What makes you think I will? <laughs> this, my boy. <laughs> this little valise with half a million dollars in it. Oh? Ever since we left the boat, you've been figuring on some way to relieve me of it, haven't you? Frankly, I have kicked the idea around once or twice. Stop wasting your time, Turner. All you're getting out of this deal is the five grand I promised you. Who knows? When you drop a safe and sound in Mexico, I might be tempted to throw in another five. That's big of you. I'll be right back. Don't uh, go away. I won't, Walsh. I won't. You watch him as he wades ashore, still holding the small black valise. You can see him in the bright moonlight running along the shore. Then he disappears into the trees that surround the cottage. And you wait. Fifteen minutes. A half hour goes by and still Walsh hasn't returned. You slip a wrench into your jacket, ease yourself into the water and start for the shore. A few minutes later, you're hurrying toward the cottage, and you're almost there when the front door opens, and you duck into the shadows. The wrench is in your hand, and you wait. Then you hear the footsteps coming along the path, closer and closer. As they reach you, you step out of the shadows, holding the wrench high in the air. Johnny. Diana. Where's Walsh? Back there in the cottage. What happened? What difference does it make? I have the bag. Let's get out of here. Diana, what happened? He's dead. I had to do it, Johnny, for us. I had to. There's a half a million dollars here, darling, and it's all ours now. Johnny, wait. Where are you going? The cottage. We can't leave him there. Why not? He was supposed to have been blown up with a boat, remember? What are we going to do? We're going to take him with us. We can dump him out in the gulf. Come on. No, Johnny. No, I don't want to go back there. Oh? Here. You can have the bag if you think I'm going to run out on you. All right. Wait here. I'll be right back. You find Walt sprawled on the cottage floor, stabbed to death, the murder knife a few feet away. Quickly, you pick him up and return to the beach where Diana is waiting for you. Then you wade out to the plains, and a few minutes later, you're skimming across the bay, headed toward the gulf. Some 20 miles out, you help Diana open the door. A bright moon rides between broken patches of clouds. With a vicious kick, you help her push the body of Frank Walsh out into space. Its size shrinks like a punctured balloon and disappears into the dark waters of the gulf. You nose the plane up for a steady climb and then level off. Mexico, Johnny. A little more than a thousand miles over the gulf. Mexico with Diana and a half a million dollars. Johnny. Yeah? I'm not sorry it turned out this way, are you? Why should I be? I got you and a half a million bucks. What more could a guy want? I told you we'd be sitting pretty, and I meant it. Yeah, by morning we'll be in Mexico. We can land this crate, burn it up. No one will ever know. We can start all over like nothing ever happened. And we'll never have to say goodbye again, darling. Never, baby. Never.
Whistler will return in just a moment with a strange ending to tonight's story. Meantime, a tip to you drivers who have wished there was some way to be sure that the gasoline you're choosing is topped in quality. Check your speedometer. Because in gasoline, it takes extra quality to go farther, which explains why we're so proud of the fact that throughout the West, from Canada to Mexico, Signal is famous as the go-farther gasoline. Sure, you signal drivers are enthusiastic about Signal's quicker starting, Signal's faster pickup, and Signal's smooth, knock-free power. But remember this, the only way today's signal gasoline can give you that superior kind of performance which you expect of a superior quality motor fuel is by helping your motor run more efficiently. And when your motor runs more efficiently, you don't have to guess about it. You see proof of it right on your own speedometer in mileage, the thing signal gasoline is famous for. That's why signal says to be sure of the tops in gasoline quality, there are just two things to remember. One, it takes extra quality to go farther. And two, Signal is the famous go-farther gasoline. And now back to the Whistler. Yes, it was a lucky break, wasn't it, Johnny? When you accepted Frank Walsh's offer to fly for the Continental Salvage Corporation in the Caribbean. Now Walsh is dead, and you're on your way to Mexico. Racing through the night sky over the gulf with Diana and the small valise containing half a million dollars. You look down at the dark, churning waters of the gulf and you feel strangely detached from the world, free of it, free of its laws and its justice. Yes, Johnny, no one will ever think of looking for you. They will all believe you were blown up with the boat chartered by the Continental Salvage Corporation. Thirty-six hours later, you scarcely enter the minds of the Coast Guard officer and the police lieutenant aboard the salvage ship Queen Noriana as they look down on the lifeless body of the murdered radio operator. Well, there he is, just the way we found him. Any identification? Mm-hmm. His radio license named Scott. Melvin Scott. Mm-hmm. Oh, we also found this. A letter he was writing to a man named Vogel. Now, let me see. It's about meeting Vogel in New Orleans with a half a million dollars. Yeah. You should see me play the innocent kid. My own mother wouldn't know me. I found the bomb you gave Walsh. He'd already planted it. I dumped it overboard the first night out. The way I got it figured, Walsh won't try a getaway in the plane to Mexico until tonight. It'll be a cinch for me to get into his cabin and switch bags on him. And I'll have a half million bucks when I meet you in New Orleans. It's really funny. Yeah. Looks like the joke was on Scott. He was shot before he got a chance to switch bags. You send an alarm out on this man Walsh, his pilot Turner? Mm-hmm. The whole Gulf area's been on the lookout. But no one sighted them. No one will. You mean Walsh and Turner got away? No, they didn't. I managed to get some information out of the mate with my limited knowledge of German and a lot of gestures. What's that? The mate saw this radio operator, Scott, around the plane the other night. You can still smell the gasoline in the afterdeck. Scott drained the extra gas tanks. That plane didn't have enough gas to take them more than 100 miles out over the Gulf. Let that whistle be your signal for the Signal Oil Program, The Whistler, each Wednesday night at this same time. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline and motor oil and fine quality automotive accessories. Signal has asked me to remind you, to get the most driving pleasure, drive at sensible speeds, be courteous, and obey traffic regulations. It may save a life, possibly your own. Featured in tonight's story were Frank Lovejoy and Joan Banks. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen with story by Sidney Renthal and music by Wilbur Hatch and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. Next Wednesday, for a full hour of mystery over most of these stations, tune in a half hour earlier. Enjoy the Saints as well as the Whistler. Marvin Miller speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
that's it for this hour of the Relic Radio Show. I'll be back next Tuesday with another one. In between now and then, you can find past episodes from the Relic Radio Show, more from The Whistler, Rocky Jordan, and everything else Relic Radio, all at the website, relicradio.com. While you're there, click on that donate button. Your support is how all of this is made possible. My thanks, as always, to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Tuesday with another hour of the Relic Radio Show.